your life that causes you to think that maybe God isn't who he says he is. Maybe it's a diagnosis. Maybe it's a disease. Maybe it's a lost job or a rejection letter. Maybe it's a breakup or a divorce. Each of us struggles with doubt. Each of us struggles with uncertainty. Perhaps not today, but at times in our lives. We're particularly susceptible to these big questions, right? Of what is God doing? Where is he in my trials? Does he even care about what I'm going through? And then maybe when we're feeling really philosophical, we start wondering, who is God anyway? How can I even know anything about him? So what do we do with these doubts? What do we do when, when these things, when these thoughts and these feelings arise in our hearts? Well, we're going to turn to Isaiah 40 today. And in this chapter, we see, um, we see Isaiah addressing a people in exile, a people in captivity in Babylon. And these are people with a lot of doubts, saying, hey, God, weren't we supposed to be your chosen people who you were going to take care of? What is going on here? And so they actually face a lot of similar fears and doubts, frustrations that I think we can really relate to. So please follow along with me. Uh, given what I just heard about the printing of the bulletin, I'm going to read straight from my Bible, so, uh, but, <laughs> so, but you can follow along in the bulletin. I'm sure it's fine. Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 31. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. 
who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That's a, that's a word from Isaiah 40, verse 8, right before we picked up reading. And it's why we gather each week, both at Trinity and here at Redeemer and in churches throughout the world, to look to God's word that it might shape and form our understanding but the truth is that there are a lot of things that are shaping our understanding, that are shaping the way we think and what we believe. And often these systems of thinking come into direct conflict with the Word of God. And though this poetry from Isaiah is thousands of years old, we believe that it speaks to those who would seek God today in the 21st century. Now, it's commonly understood that the book of Isaiah was written kind of in three parts or three different movements like acts in a play. And the first 39 chapters deal at great length with, Isaiah, with the people's failings to trust the Lord um, in, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in the Promised Land, their failings to trust the Lord. And uh, for these failings, they are conquered and taken into exile in Babylon. And so chapters 40 through 55 are kind of the second act, and it strikes a very different tone, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 40, which says, Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. And so then these chapters speak to a people who, who see their need, who are wondering what can be done. And this is the message that God gives to Isaiah. And it begins right in verse 9 in the passage that we read just a moment ago. Where he says, Get you up to a high mountain, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength for this good news. And the good news is simply this. Three words. Behold your God. Behold your God. That is the Lord's message to this scared and fearful people. These people who are wondering, what sense can we make of this senseless, painful life? He says, behold your God. Now, 
to help us understand why that would be helpful at all. I want you to think for a moment of um, car sickness. Do you have anybody in your family who gets motion sick driving in the car? My wife gets motion sick driving in the car, so I'm going to throw her under the bus here. Because when we go on long trips, she starts, she starts saying, oh, your driving's really making me sick. I'm really starting to not feel so well. And I look over, and she's sitting there reading a book. Well, if you know anything about motion sickness, the worst thing you can do is sit in the car and try to read. What do you need to do? You need to look up. You need to look out the window and look to the horizon. Because as you focus in on your book, which my wife does every single time we go on a long trip, you start to feel sick. Your stomach starts churning, and the more you read, the worse it feels. The more you kind of look down or focus on what's right there in front of you in the car, the worse you feel. Look up, look to the horizon. All right, maybe you don't get motion sick. We're, we're right by the ocean, so maybe some of you are paddle boarders. Uh, I started learning to paddle board in the last couple of years, and the first thing that uh, happened to me as soon as I got up on a paddle board was I fell right off. And again, I'm up on, so I get back up and I'm like real shaky, looking down, trying everything to stay balanced. And what does my friend tell me? He says, okay, the more you look right at your immediate surroundings, the more you're going to get shaky legged and want to fall off. Look to the horizon. Look as far away as possible. Get the big picture and, and things stabilize. And suddenly you're able to stay still. So, so maybe, maybe one of those two metaphors will be helpful for you in, in understanding what, what the Lord is saying here because ultimately what this passage is showing us is that whenever you face times of doubt and unbelief, look upon Jesus, okay? Whenever you face times of doubt and unbelief, look upon Jesus because the difficulty of course, is the one that, is that, is that he's the one you're doubting. He's the one you're struggling to believe. But the more and more we fixate on the pain and fixate on, on what is, on, on our uncertainty and our doubts, the, the more and more shaky we get, the more and more ill we feel. But, but the Lord says, behold your God, look up, see the big picture, look to the horizon and look upon Jesus in your times of doubt and unbelief. That is the very reason that God sent his son, is that w so we might look to him. And God actually, in this passage and throughout scripture, invites us to bring our doubts, to bring our unbelief, to bring our fears, to bring our challenges before him, because he says, I'm big enough to take it on. He says, come and bring those things to me, and I want you to compare and contrast me Really look at me with everything else. So ask your questions, bring your skepticism, but make sure you look at him. Make sure you gaze intently at him, at his promises, and at who he is, and really wrestle with who he is. And so as we look upon Jesus today, I want to look at uh, really two big questions. One, is he able to save? And two, can we trust him? And so first we'll see how looking upon Jesus really orient, reorients us to his power, right? One of the reasons we, we need to look up and behold our God is because looking upon Jesus reorients us to his power. But then we also need to be reoriented to his promise. So secondly, we'll see how looking upon Jesus 
reorients us to his promise. See what we're doing? Two parts. First, being reoriented to the power of Jesus. Second, being reoriented to the promise of Jesus. So let's look first at how looking upon Jesus reorients us to his power. What does God want his people to see? Well, look at verses 12 through 14 in your passage there. And look at all these rhetorical questions. Who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hands? Right? Who's weighed the mountains in the scales, the hills in the balance? He begins by reminding his people of the vastness of creation. And think about how when you're cooking, you might put a little salt in your hand, in the hollow of your hand, and, and dabble some salt into, into your meal. Well, you know, Isaiah's reminding people, well, the Lord does that with the oceans, right? He's like, I think we need a little bit more ocean over here in the Atlantic, a little more ocean over here in the Pacific. What man then has power to influence a God who is so vast and sovereign over creation itself? He is so other, he is so apart, he is so holy and, and different than anything we can imagine to have that kind of power. Now, of course, he doesn't, need, he doesn't need counsel because his wisdom is unsearchable, right? So it says, who did, who did God consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Well, he is understanding. He is wisdom. He is justice. So obviously, uh, we see in these passages a metaphorical language that speaks to God's proportion with respect to creation and our proportion with respect to creation. We've got a big, big God who is in control of all things. And then we've, we've got us. And uh, the Lord is saying, look, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're accounted as dust on scales. I mean, the, when, you, when you really step back to see the scale properly, we, we get a picture somewhat like verse 22, where it says, its inhabitants, the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers. So uh, we're being compared to grasshoppers there. And it says God stretches out the heavens like a curtain or like a tent. Um, recently I watched this video that uh, is really spectacular. It kind of began focused in on, on the earth and kind of zoomed out a little bit. You could see the moon and the earth and then zoomed out a little bit more. You could see a few of the planets and the sun. Zoomed out a little bit more to the galaxy. It just kept zooming out. And it started to be unsettling because I just realized how small and insignificant the earth is. And I am on that earth when you zoom out and you see the vastness of the universe. I mean, we can't really even wrap our minds around the vastness of the universe. You know, we, we can try and look at pictures, but we, we can't actually even comprehend something that complex and that vast. And yet we also see through scientific discovery how how intricate and how infinitely complex the smallest building blocks of life are. And we see that we're reminded here, we have a God who understands the vastness and the intricacy of all of creation. And, you know, for some of us, all, you know, studying, studying science and uh, really looking closely at creation can cause us to doubt, be like, well, this... I don't understand why God would do this or how God would do this. But, you know, I've, I found this helpful quote from a scientist, Joseph Taylor. He received a Nobel Prize for Physics in 1993. Here's what he said. A scientific discovery is also a religious discovery 
There's no conflict between science and religion. Our knowledge of God is made larger with every discovery we make about the world. And I think that's kind of the message here in Isaiah 40. Like, look at this world. Discover more about, well, you're just discovering more about the God who created it. That he's even bigger and, and more unsearchable than you knew before. He has even more plans at work in this world than you knew before you made that scientific discovery. And of course, the creator has made himself known to his creatures. He's made himself evident in creation. Scripture tells us that again and again. And, and in verse 25, and in several places, but verse 25, it says, who then will you compare to God? And the message is essentially this. Lift up your eyes. Look at the universe. Who is capable of creating this vast universe? What power must lie behind creation? And you see how Isaiah 40 is inviting us to really ask that question and sit there and think about that for a moment and not just come up with some pat answer, but yeah, wow, it's, this is no small feat. What power must lie here? You know, I'm, I'm often fascinated by the beauty and complexity of trees. I see a couple out the windows here. Each one is different and a healthy one grows up so fast. There's this oak outside of my house, it's enormous, right? But it's made up of a thousand different leaves that have this intricate detail. And again, see, God has made, God has made vast things with great intimate detail. Now back in verses 18 through 20, Isaiah brings up the idea of comparing God to an idol. And Isaiah really is inviting these people again and again. Compare him to all the other things in your life that you might worship, that you might be tempted to find some meaning in. Now an idol, what does he say, is made by a craftsman. It can be very pretty, but it doesn't move. It's created, but God is the creator. So here we see some of what lies behind our need to look upon Jesus. Because when we face pain, when we face suffering, we face fear and despair and sadness. Our temptation is to doubt. And then we start things that are going to give us a little bit of comfort, give us a little security. Maybe our bank account, maybe our spouse, maybe our jobs, maybe our GPAs. And one of the major doubts that we have that's actually functioning in our lives at that moment is that God himself is not able to help us, is not able to enter into our situation. And perhaps we even have the wrong God. And so that's why scripture wants us to really compare our God with other gods. Go ahead and compare Christianity to all the other world religions. See what you find. Because there's a lot of variety out there. And so a lot of us stop there and are just bewildered. We look around and, and we say, we, this is our, our society wants to do this. Our culture commonly wants to say, look, there's just so many different opinions. We can't really know which one is right and, and if another's wrong. And scripture says, no, that's not right. There is truth. And look, really look and really ask yourself, where is truth found? Where is their actual power? Because when you actually look at Jesus, you see something unique. You see something you don't see 
in all the rest of the world's religions because you see God himself becoming man. And why did he do this? He did this because he loves you. But he also did this because he knew that he had a power to actually heal what is wrong with this world, to heal what is broken, a power over death itself. And so what did Jesus do with his flesh? He gave it up. He suffered for us. He went to the cross that he might die and in his resurrection display a power greater than the world has ever seen because it was a power over the grave. And so when we really look at Jesus, we see a Savior who is powerful to save, who has entered into our suffering and who really does, who really does have power in our lives. And so the answer is not that he is powerless or unable to help us. But perhaps you continue to struggle thinking, well, can I trust him? Is he, I don't see him working in the way I want him to right now. I don't see him providing immediate relief to me. So maybe, maybe I can't really trust him. Maybe he's unwilling to help me. And that's where looking upon Jesus reorients us to his promise. It, it fixes our vision back on the horizon. Because it's not just enough that we see God's power. Because that alone isn't actually of comfort. We must see his promises too. We must see his goodness to us, his love for us. So look at verses 10 and 11 with me. God comes with might and he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. Jesus tells us he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And even though God is this powerful, holy, set-apart, greater-than-us being, we see that he, he, he is present. We don't want to fall into the trap of thinking we're too small for him to care. Think of all the... Um, think, of, think of the ways that we just treat things smaller than us as nuisances, you know, insects, grasshoppers, as the passage mentions, bugs. You know, we can tend to, we can start to think, okay, if God is that vast, I must be such a nuisance to him, right? Uh, but it's not the case with God, right? God doesn't run out of bandwidth for dealing with our problems. Like, look at verses 27 and 28. Why, why do you think that your way is hidden from the Lord, that your way is disregarded, that your right is disregarded by God? You know, remember that movie, Bruce Almighty, where Jim Carrey gets a chance to be God, for a little while and he's like getting exhausted by all the emails that he's having to do. You know, I, we laugh at that but we kind of think, oh, another prayer. I don't want to bug God with this. You know, he's, he's probably getting tired. He probably doesn't have time to listen to this. God is not like us. Now, what these verses I think are also pointing us back to as we talk about our way being hidden from the Lord are pointing us back to the broken re relationship we have with God in the first place, right? Which we see in, in the fall back in the Garden of Eden as Adam and Eve try to hide their sin, try to hide their rebellion, their disobedience. They sought to, to hide. And that, that problem runs throughout all human beings that we all struggle with trying to hide from God. Deep within our hearts, there's a sin that wants to hide from Jesus. And so we then convince ourselves, God has disregarded us. We tell ourselves he doesn't really see, he doesn't really care. 
Because ultimately, our sin and rebellion, it's a rejection of Him. But when we look upon Jesus, there's no hiding. It's awkward when you stare directly into another person's eyes for a long period of time because you start thinking, okay, they're looking right back at me. What are they seeing? What are they thinking? You start to feel really vulnerable. And so too, what, is, what does it mean for us to stare at Jesus, for us to behold our God? It's this recognition that everything we've done, everything we've thought, everything we felt is laid bare before the Lord. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our mortality. He knows our sin. He knows our shame. But that's why Jesus came to tend his flock like a shepherd, to gather the lambs in his arms. And so we see this vast, unsearchable God has promised himself to us by making his son take on flesh for all of eternity to be like us, that we might be forever joined with our God. And he, he didn't conquer death just to show his power, but to restore his people, to restore us to him. And so... What do we do now with our pain and confusion? What do we do with the suffering in the world? We don't just tough it out because a new world is coming. I don't think that's the answer that God gives us. Instead, what we see here is the promise of strength and renewal. That we will run and not be weary. That we will walk and not faint. Now that doesn't mean that we're not going to know real pain and real struggles. Jesus told his disciples that in this world you shall know pain. There will be tribulation. There will be suffering. But take heart for he's overcome the world. He's entered into our pain with us. That's not something that an aloof God does. That a far off God does. That's something that our Savior Jesus has done. Now we can't always know why God allows a particular suffering. But we look to Jesus. And we are assured that it's not because he doesn't care. It's not because he doesn't love us. And it's not because he's powerless to stop it. Therefore, there must be something greater at work. You know, when, when you were a kid, maybe you had chicken pox, and you were told, don't scratch it, it's going to leave a scar. Or maybe uh, ac- really bad acne. Don't, don't pick at it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to scar. And so too, as, as the doubts and fears would, would overwhelm us, as we, as we pick at them, and as we just, as we just focus on them, they, they leave scars. We do harm to our souls because we run away from the one who brings healing and life. Instead, the Lord promises healing to us. He says, look upon Jesus. Look to the cross where I have put my son on display for you, the, he- the healer of your hearts. Because I assure you, he is big enough for your doubts. He is big enough for your skepticism. And our passage began with the promise of good news. What was foretold in the coming of Jesus takes on new meaning and significance for the church today. Because we're called too to be messengers of this good news. Not that that Jesus is coming for the first time, that's already happened. But behold your God, all people who has come and who has died for you, has died for, for all of your sin, has died and can take on all of your skepticism and all of your doubts. He's big enough for it. But just look upon him don't run from him don't hide from him anymore he loves you what man shows counsel to God well Jesus Jesus stands before the father interceding for you because he loves you 
and because he's earned the right to speak on your behalf eternally. And he's returning soon. So we are a people who find strength waiting upon the Lord and gazing upon his beauty. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are mindful of us. That though, though you are vast and greater than all creation, than anything we can imagine, yet you sent your son Jesus to take on flesh to be like us. And so we pray that in the midst of our temptation, in the midst of our failures, and in the midst of our, our skepticism and our fears and our unbelief, Lord, would you help us to look upon Jesus? Would Jesus become so, so large in our eyes and in our hearts that everything else just pales in comparison to the love and to the hope and to the joy we have in Him? We pray these things in His precious name. Amen.